Welcome to Basecamp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rezac. This is the show that gives you insights and resources on how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome and let's get started. If one is to be a seeker of truth, you will inevitably find yourself in a forested maze, so to speak. Truth is looking for us, and it is embedded in myth and the Western mystery schools, in things that are esoteric and occult, and things like conspiracy theories where the seeker will rub shoulders with all sorts of characters, some for us and some against us. I used to think I was looking for quote-unquote the way, and as I've aged, I realized I was always looking for my way. My way of interpreting the data and speaking the truth with courage. My way of helping others to understand what's happening to us. And my way of being in the flow and helping to ready ourselves for what is coming. I believe there is great value in looking at the deeper patterns that are showing themselves to us and doing it together. Can you be in conversations that are a bit uncomfortable? Ones that take you out to the edge of your understanding. We are all being forced to our edges right now, and this is how the divine intended it to be. Let's go meet our guest, an artist from Brooklyn, no less, and unpack some of these esoteric ideas. Ronnie Thomas is a Brooklyn-based artist and filmmaker most known for his web series The Midnight Archive, his 2014 film Walter Potter, The Man Who Married Kittens, and the AMC digital series The Broken and the Bad, which is a documentary compendium to Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. His most recent film, The Cabalion, released earlier this year and is a surreal documentary expansion of the 1908 text of the same name. Here is my interview with Ronnie Thomas. Okay, I'm here with Ronnie Thomas, filmmaker, artist, metaphysical student, and occult enthusiast, Ronnie Thomas. Ronnie, welcome to Basecamp for Men. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Tony. I love it. Yeah, it's been, you know, I found your film. We'll talk about that in just a bit. You know, you sent me a, a, a funny little quote from Jean Cocteau in the email. You said, oh, I checked out your show, and it, it reminded me of my favorite quote by um, this filmmaker, uh, who said, quote, I prefer mythology to history. History is a fact that becomes a lie. Mythology is a lie that becomes a fact, unquote. And I'd never seen this quote with all my studies in mythology. I was like, I love that quote. So um, how how did you first get interested in mythology and, and, and the occult? Like, what was your what was your door? Did you get into it as a young man? Was it like always there? Or did you discover it, you know, later on when you started to study film and stuff? No. So I, I, I grew up between the horror movie section of the video store and the occult section of the bookstore. Hmm. Anything that was offbeat and strange and, uh, you know, that, that some, something in me was different. I went to Catholic school. Right. So, <laughs> you know, and I just I did none of it really made sense to me. I liked the 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 pomp and I love the, the ceremony. But, yeah. you know, it's just it, it, I would say I'm an accidental Buddhist. Like yeah, I didn't know, any, you know, I, I didn't know what these things were that I was feeling as very, very young. And I'm sure it was the same for you. Yeah. You just, I was confused by like, no, the reality doesn't seem to be fitting into the way that everyone else seems to think it is. My parents noticed it at a very early age as well. And, you know, I, I, I had one very strange experience as a kid that I think really accelerated my interest in uh, that would I get whatever you want to call it, the occult esotericism, new age, mm-hmm. where uh, a baby had been found in a dumpster by my school. And 
the mother was just irreconcilable and the media were, you know, there. And I just, you know, we were in class and the teacher was saying, who would have, I was probably nine years old at the time. And the teacher said, who, who could have possibly done such a terrible thing? And I just raised my hand and I said, the, the mother did it. And needless to say, I got sent to the principal's office. I got, you know, suspended. I was nine. My mother was furious with me, like, how insensitive can you be? And I, I said, I'm really sorry. And I don't know why I said it. But then, of course, you know, That's the mother was, yeah. was the murderer. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. you know, I didn't say it, in, in, but I always chalked it up to, oh, he could be a good detective. But then I started thinking about what is intuition. Mm. And when we speak of mythology, right? And I don't know if you're familiar with Mayan myths and the Egyptian myths. I'm sure you are. They really start to, as we learn more about quantum and string theory and, you know, dark matter and dark energy, they seem to kind of get it. You know, they didn't, it didn't even seem to, they didn't like, it's very strange how the Egyptian creation myth kind of lines up with more what science will tell us nowadays than the early, you know, biblical myths. You know, absolutely. Well, and, and, yeah. and like, like you, you know, I, f- I have felt like a detective on a hunt for looking for something that is, you know, like the divine source, you know, or, or, you know, clues to the mystery of our unfoldment, our, our hidden history, all these different things that are hidden in myth and, and, you know, when I first started coming across some of the esoteric stuff, even stuff like crop circles, that's kind of how I was initiated initially as I was like, what in the hell are these things? They're so beautiful. How could anything get created that like people can't create these yet? Like, like, so what's creating these? That was kind of what started the metaphysical search and myth just, you know, you know, I'd read my fair share of Joseph Campbell and, but it was just, as I started to read into like the grail myth and the fallen goddess of the Gnostics and and now Egyptian myth to your point. Um, it just seemed like the more that I kind of sat with it, studied it, contemplated it, the more the pattern would reveal itself to me. It was almost like the myths were like a mystery school. If you stayed with it, if you were just going to look for a quick fix, it would say, get out of here. You're not worthy. But if you were willing to stay with it and meditate on it and work with it, from a number number of different angles, it would yield the pattern to more and more, you know? So it was exhilarating. It's still exhilarating, but it's just like, you know, I don't meet people like you very often because I've always been a little bit of a closet freak when it comes to mystery schools and the esoteric, you know, where I'm like, you know, if people knew that I was all the way over in these rabbit holes, they'd be like, are you okay? So, but I am okay, you know? Yeah. It's something I'm passionate about. So, yeah. I'm I'm a little more hard edged than most people, I think. And and maybe you, you probably apply to that same school. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not airy fairy. I tell it like it is yeah. pretty blunt with people. Yeah. Um, it's which could be off-putting for a lot of people because they expect you to be airy fairy and just yeah. kind of, you know, and it's really that I grew up in Brooklyn in the 19, a sensitive boy in Brooklyn in the 1980s and working class Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. So if it wasn't for a sense of humor and these myths, these myths and, um, and like you say, these mysteries that are seeming, they just, they're just out of reach. You know, it's almost like you can, you can almost, you almost have it, but then it wouldn't be real because right. it needs to be a mystery. You know, it has to be encoded in some way. Um, so that it's revealed to us 
when we're no longer here. And that's kind of what I feel. I don't believe anything, but I feel that in a weird way. Well, and before we get into the Cabal, you did the film, The Cabalion. How did you, how did you settle on, of all the topics, this esoteric book? Um, I'm going to read a passage of it. Um, and I, you know, it's funny, The Cabalion, it was kicking around on the bookshelf at the bookstore for a number of years. I think I thumbed through it, you know, five times before I actually purchased it. So it wasn't, it, to me, it's, it, it feels foundational to understand something, but also kind of advanced. Like, I don't think my consciousness where I was when I was younger was ready for it. I don't think, I think it just didn't make any sense. I'm like, I don't know what this is about. But then fast forward, you know, 15 years later, and I'm like, whoa, this is like really, really um, hits the spot. And I just wanted to read a uh, part of it before I hand it over to you and ask you how you got interested in it. Um, it's from a section. I don't know. I'm not quite sure which section it's from, but it says there are beings with powers and attributes higher than man has ever dreamed of the gods possessing. And yet these beings were once as you and still lower, and you will be as they and still higher in time for such is the destiny of man as reported by the illumined and death is not real. Even in the relative sense, it is but birth to a new life, and you shall go on and on and on to higher and still higher planes of life. The universe is your home. You are dwelling in the infinite mind of the all, and your possibilities and opportunities are infinite, both in time and space, unquote. So, I mean, that's a taste of what's in the book, how you cannot be completely smitten and drawn in when it has that kind of truth and that kind of power and transformation in it. Um, for me, I'm like, wow, this, this book, let me dig in and find out. So how did, how did you first discover it? Was it, did you just discover it on your own? Was it, did a friend recommend it? Was it being passed around circles? How, how did you first come across it? And then how did you decide to do, do a film on it? Okay, so I'm going to disappoint you at first, and then hopefully reappoint okay. you. Okay, that's I, fine. You're like I've I, never read it. No, just kidding. <laughs> well, well, it's not. It's not. It's not that bad. Okay. But it, I was approached by um, somebody who publishes the book. Yeah. Um, to they said, hey, I've got this book. It's in the pub, public domain. Yeah. And it sells like hotcakes. You can get it for free, but it sells old, like it's my bestseller. Yep. Would you be interested in doing a film? And I said, I looked at it and I, and I flipped through it just a bit. And I, I said, well, no, because I don't know how you'd turn this into a film. I know. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, I, how would, how would you go about that? And, yep. you know, and so he came back to me about a week or two later and he was like, listen, you could, you could do whatever you want. And to an artist, that's, you know, creative freedom is like, that's more than a budget. <laughs> so, yeah, totally. So yeah. I said, he's like, just, you just got to call it the Gabalion. Mm-hmm. So I said, I re- almost reluctantly agreed. I was like, you know what? I like a challenge. Sure. And I looked through the book again and I still was kind of like, I, all right, it's, it, it's nothing I hadn't already kind of figured out, gotten to on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more I dug into it and the more I kind of realized that, I was like, well, there are people who haven't gotten there, right? right. So that's kind of important. It's important to be, you know, if, if you kind of understand these in a way that you think is right, and that's a, an important uh, I think something that we should talk about with the Gabalion, there are many ways to interpret it. So the passage you just read, for example, mm-hmm. I had the great Raymond Moody, who is, you know, the legendary near-death uh, experience 
uh, researcher in my film talk about that in relation to uh, binaries, polars, polarity, mm-hmm. um, and life and death kind of being a sliding scale. It's not really, it's indefinable boundaries that he says, and he, it's such a wonderful way to put life and death. There, there's measures of indefinable boundaries, right? Yes. So as I really started developing it, I started liking, and um, I was working with um, Mitch Horowitz, who's a friend of mine, and he was my partner in the film, and he talked extensively about the Kabbalion, and I, I, it was through him that I started to kind of understand some of the deeper levels of it. Yeah. And I said, okay, it's, it's, it's almost like having the, the cliff notes sitting next to you. Um, right. And, and then I decided we were going to go to Egypt, which I don't, I think I just wanted to go to Egypt. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. I don't blame you. Yeah. It was that whole experience was, I mean, it was an episode on its own because mm-hmm. um, as all things in my life, it turned into a bit of a comedy, but um in a good way. It gave me much more stories to tell. But when I realized, okay, you know what, this is, it's, you can make a cool film, but you can also advocate for these alternative um, schools of thought. Then it really got me jazzed about making it and doing it in a way that was a little surrealistic, a little mysterious. Like you're saying, it should, it should be a bit confusing. I don't, I did a talk up in Lilydale, New York with a friend of my friend, Shannon Taggart. And um, Lilydale is a, is a community of spiritualists, the oldest spiritualist community. Um, there's a seance going on in every house, basically at all the times. <laughs> and I talked about um, mediumship, which is in the film, obviously. And yep. my process being as a filmmaker, being very similar to their process in terms of allowing the film to kind of find itself and make itself. And then the editing process is more like alchemy. And then so, so I kind of liken these disciplines that I have to other disciplines, you know, whether it's art or mediumship or alchemy or channeling. So I like it, how you did it, that. You did that in the film really well. I thought you showed how different, uh, you know, uh, creatives, artists, mystics, alchemists, you, you kind of showed how they took different uh, interpretations of principles of the Kabbalion. And I thought that was a really, that was a really interesting way. Obviously you settled on that as how do I do this? Because anytime you're doing a book about mysticism or metaphysics, how do you, how do you portray that on film is a, is a unique challenge. It's not like you're just telling a story where you've got characters, you're trying to relay power, the power of principles in the book or what is this book about? How can people apply? And I thought how you, how you had, you know, um, psychics on there, you had people that were mystics and, and your friend who was the uh, Egyptian mythologist. Um, I thought the way that you did it was really great because it showed a bunch of different angles uh, of people that had taken principles and sort of fleshed them out for their own expression, I guess. They're, they're talking about wacky stuff, yeah. but they're, they're all very good at making it sound normal, which I right. love. Right. Like right. Paula, Paula Roberts, who, you know, she does the Cindy Adams predictions of the future for the New York post. She's a, she's a, she's an absolute legend. And she's, she, I mean, more than just being amazing on her own, she had a really strong relationship with Ingo Swan, who was like, wow, well, the guy's a legend, yeah, you know, of remote yep. viewing and, yep. and how you know, I have the opportunity to have Ingo in my film. It's like, of course. Um, but she, 
she has such a wonderful way of delivering these ridiculous lines about going to the moon and seeing these warping tunnels. And you're like, but you, at least I think you buy it. You're, you're there with her. It's like, yeah. Oh, this isn't some kook. Yeah. She's, she's kind of just like you're, you could be talking to your English grandmother and she's, you know, she's going to kill me for saying that, but. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I think also the, like the things that you're talking about, a lot of the esoteric stuff and metaphysical stuff, it's getting normalized in consciousness. I think the more people that can talk about it, synthesize it in language for people and build bridges for the next wave. I mean, look, you and I are already over there. It's like, how do we make content, film, um, art, um, you know, that brings more people over when they go, well, this doesn't sound as crazy as I originally looked and thought, oh, those are just the psychics over there. It's not just the psychics over there. There's all kinds of people, you know, Joseph Campbell's over there. It's a good company to be in, right? So it is. It, uh, it, and, it's, and isn't it funny that so much that you bring up art is consciousness art, like Alex Gray. And then there's yeah. like people like that. And, but, but a lot of it's turned, even if it doesn't, even if it's not overt, if you look at contemporary art is going in that direction. The fact that the Hilma F. Clint uh, exhibit at the Guggenheim was the the top selling exhibit the Guggenheim ever did. That's saying something. Absolutely. I mean, and it was phenomenal. I mean, if there, if they, if there, if there's an exhibit in Seattle and you miss it, you've missed a grand opportunity. I'll tell you that. Okay. Uh, Her story is fantastic. Well, and one of the things about, the Kabbalion that's that's mysterious, you know, it is said to come from Hermes, right? It's it's yeah. it's a centerpiece of the Hermetic tradition. So people go, well, what is the Hermetic tradition? And even that is shrouded in mystery because it starts to get connected to not just Hermes Trismegistus, but you're talking about Thoth in Egypt, all the way back to even Enki in the Sumerian pantheon. So in all of these sort of uh, philosophies or mythologies, there's always some deity or ascended master or god or goddess that is trying to assist humanity in their awakening and there's yeah. all and there's always the counterpart which is Enlil or the demiurge or you know there's always some counterpart that's trying to inhibit humanity realizing oh you know wait a minute we may be part of this whole thing and we all might be immortals and we just don't know it yet but, um but yeah, they're also binary is the yeah. thing it's and so that's where and you know the, we there was a real missed opportunity unfortunately when we were in egypt mm-hmm. uh mitch noticed that there was um thoth and um set embracing yeah in one of these reliefs and he took a great picture of it, but like it made the, okay, these are not necessarily boring entities. They're yeah. necessary. And it's, you know, it's the same in all mythologies. I'll say my favorite Hermes is the Hermes of Greek mythology. He's, yeah. he's a cut up. If, I don't know if you've read Stephen Fry's um, mythos, but my God, what a masterful work that is. Uh, I'll have to check it out. I've never read that one actually. Oh, he's, 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 and if, if you do the audiobook, he reads it okay. and he's just such a thespian and he's so passionate about Greek mythology that you, you, it's one of those, I have very few books in my life where I put it down and I don't want it to end. I don't want it to, mm. I want more. Yeah. And, you know, I hadn't gotten that into Greek mythology until I read his book. And I said, wow, this is, you know, and his Hermes is just, you know, he's the best because he's a trickster, you know, like he, he I'm big into the trickster. Sure. Uh, and that's, I think at the cornerstone, one of my friends is a guy called George Hansen, and he wrote a book called The Trickster and the Paranormal, and how the trickster is an essential component. It's, 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 it's essential that we don't, that we're always being led on 
you know, wild goose hunts trying to capture this thing, which will never be caught. Mm. Um, otherwise it ceases to be, then you've understood it and then you're no longer looking at it. So yeah, it's, you know, I think I got a little off track there, but I didn't know. No, it's all, it's all good. It's all good. Um, well, and then, you know, in the Kabbalion, they, they, they emphasize that there's kind of seven cosmic principles. I'm going to read them quickly and then we'll, we'll dig into a couple of them. So the first one's the principle of mentalism. The second is the principle of correspondence. The third is the principle of vibration. The fourth is the principle of polarity. The fifth is the principle of rhythm. Number six is the principle of cause and effect, or you could say karma. And the seventh is the principle of gender. And when you first dig into it, you know that he talks about um, the principle of mentalism being a master key, a foundational yeah. principle in the hermetic uh, in the hermetic canon. Um, and so, for you, what what is the principle of mentalism? What is it? What's a good framework? And how do people work with it? What's a good way to think about it? So, okay, so yeah, they're all. I th- I feel like they all in some ways blend together all these principles, but mentalism to me is this kind of overarching notion that at the mind and it's very nascent in new thought. Um, and I, and this was essentially a new thought text, even though it's kind of masquerading as a cult, I think it was primarily new thought, which is that your it's your mind has a causative, uh, com- causative power to it. So, sure. and I've, I've, I've experienced this myself in, in my own life, where if I focus my intention on something and I keep a kind of, you can reduce it down to think positive, but that's not all it is. Right. Um, you'll find that a positive outcome will, it's, it's not the secret, but the secret is it. If that makes any sense, you know, yeah. it's like, yeah. it's, it's a, but it's bigger than that. You know I mean? It's, it's more that the universe is, a giant mind, kind of like the Egyptian in, in Egyptian mythology. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's this constant source of creation and the human mind is the same. So I heard, a, I heard somebody say something great. It said, you know, mentalism, you know, the human mind or um, the human con- consciousness is the universe experiencing itself. Mm. So I think that's the best way to put it. Not it's like kind that. of a feedback loop for the universe. Yeah. So, you know, it, it created us and our consciousness, which is then ref- reflected back onto it, just as we create in this kind of almost, like I said, like a feedback loop. So it's, it, it's, I, I, it's the most fun to play with, I think. Well, in you, terms you, and, of, you, and, you and I were talking about uh, meditation before we got mm-hmm. on the call. And, you know, to me, when I was younger, I just thought, you know, I'm trying to calm my mind now you know, 25 years later or whatever, I see that it, it is me tapping into this two-way communication with the cosmic mind, let's say, you know, or divinity, yeah. or, you know, it's, it's a, it's a feedback loop where I'm getting instructions and giving my gratitude or my awe or reverence or appreciation to the all, to my interconnectedness, to my human beings that share this journey with me. And I think that's the real power when you're talking about meditation is tapping into that kind of mentalism of, you know, let me go, let me go big here. Um, and yeah, go ahead. I, I think what it does is so language gets really muddy, right? Like it's sure because people latch on, like I just did a series on astronomy and I brought, I would bring up God and mm. you cannot use that word around scientists because mm. they automatically jump to the dogmatic version of God. I never mm. mean God. Right. So where we had to land was intelligent design. Like, do you believe in the possibility of intelligent design? That would be, that's God. 
Yeah. And my, and I don't have any beliefs necessarily because I think that, and part of the Kabbalion is things are always in flux. You're always kind of shifting and shaping your, mm-hmm. your belief systems. You should never hold anything too precious because then it becomes written in stone and nothing in this universe is written in stone. It's always in flux. Mm. But um, mentalism is that, it, you could, I mean, you could think of it kind of as, as an egotistical way to think, but your experience, you, Tony, are experiencing your own universe. And I'm, Ronnie, am experiencing my own universe. So each of us are capable of experiencing the universe as it exists and having some agency over it. Which I think is interesting. I believe, like, as we get older as men, too, it's like, you know, when we're young, we're like, I'm pursuing this, I'm building this, you know, career, way I'm going to be, or this mark I'm going to make. I think there's a point where I've started to realize, you know, what's really being tested is my ability to let go of how I think of how I think everything's going to go. Like I have a notion like, okay, well, when I get this stage of, you know, my pre-retirement or, you know, I'm going to live over here. And it's like, I can just feel the universe going, yeah, you might, or you might not like, don't maybe don't, you can, you can put some things in motion, but just don't grab too tightly to anything, particularly right now. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of um, we're evolving very fast. This awakening's happening very fast, but and a lot of the old systems are crumbling. So it's not a good time to just try to build your your little sandcastle and say this is how I'm going to be the rest of my life. It's like you know, can I can I be skillful if I lose if the banks collapse and I lose all my money? Can I still be the same person? Can I be the same no matter what? If I get really ill, am I still going to be, can I still carry the same wisdom, you know, or is it all going to be about that? I'm sick. You know, how, how, how gracefully can I travel, you know, the chapters of my hero's journey? And it just seems like, you know, I'm 55 now. It seems like once I hit middle age, it was like the, the universe was kind of saying, you know, letting go is going to start to become more and more important for you. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know if oh, you've yeah. done that. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. It's, yeah. and I, I feel like I'm, maybe it's like I'm a middle child. Maybe that's what it was. But I was always, you know, because I was always in between. Mm-hmm. And I feel like to some degree, I've always had that kind of feeling of just like, you know what? It's you walk the shores of eternity and like just anything can happen mm-hmm. instead of trying to plug yourself into a formula. And the you will, I've had the, I can't go into it in a half hour. I've had a very wild life. And I was an Indiana Jones guy. I was never really a Star Wars guy. I wanted adventure in my life. Mm-hmm. And when people ask, talk about my career, I didn't, and they're like, well, I've never heard of you. And I'm like, it, it used to bother me, but it's like, when I realized I chose a career, my, my career to be one of adventure and self-discovery, fame isn't that important to me. I don't care if people know who I am. Yeah. Um, I want them to see the work, but I don't, I'm inconsequential. I li- I have my own life and my work has its own life, you know? Yeah. I'm the same way. You know, I yeah. just, I, I, I think as my work gets better, I desire for more people to see it because I think it'll, it'll help them and make more of an impact, but it's not about, there is no me going, okay, when Tony Rezac becomes super fit, I don't really give a rat's ass about that. Right. It's not about that. Um, and, and part of me walking the talk is right sizing my ego. It's not about me, me, me. It's about what we're talking about and what people, how can we assist people in their unfoldment, in their process? Um, one of the things before we were come on the show, you said, Hey, I want to commend you. We don't, I don't see too many, um, heterosexual white guys doing yeah. you know, shows. And I wanted to ask you about gender. Cause 
I mean, I live in Seattle. It's super uber, you know, woke here with, <laughs> yes. with, with all of, you know, and we, we actually took my young son out of public school because we just didn't agree with the ideology. We just wanted him to learn how to read and write and, and do math and just get educated. And he can decide which way he wants to go philosophically later instead of it just being shoved down his throat. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things, I guess the, the, the Kabbalion says, you know, uh, one of the principles is gender, that yeah. there's, there's gender in universal law. And I guess I wanted to get your thoughts, because you and I both live in very liberal areas where everything's about the pronouns and, oh, they've all, you know, all these different things. And, you know, I don't want to be pissing everybody off here in Seattle, but my kind of standard is like, I don't really like to argue with nature. There's, there's male and female in, in, in nature, and I'm aligned that way. And I, and if you want to be, you want to call yourself something else, that's fine. I don't care. Like if you say, Hey, I'm kind of in between and I've got a a special name for myself. I don't, that's fine. But I don't think making the education system all about that is necessarily a smart way to go, which is why I pulled my son out of, out of public school. But I I wanted to get your thoughts on that because you, you and I are in, you're on the other side of the country, but I have a feeling you're, you're still maybe you're not in corporate or in education. So you're not necessarily being, you know, inundated with. Oh, my wife is. I, okay, I see. Okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. It's. I mean, look, we are in. I, your head will spin when you mm-hmm. if you start to pay attention to like the what will eventually be seen as twenty twenties nonsense. Yeah. But um, and I have a I have a seventeen year old son, and mm-hmm. uh, and he, it's it's constant for him in in his kind of like development and he's he's aware of it and we you know we have we we share a couple of good laughs at you know the 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 kind of sheep herding mm-hmm. that you're seeing nowadays and I'm, I'm glad he sees it but then i also worry about him yeah in the sense that okay well what does the future look like for a young 17 year old blonde haired blue eyed yeah. male uh-huh. um yeah. like what is what really, you know, what does the future look like for any child, to be honest? I mean, that, that, yep. that's where you start. Yep. But when you add all these complications, you know, language is supposed to make things easier. But when you're, you know, faced with um, 17 different genders. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It becomes that much more confusing when instead of, and there is something I think you'd find fascinating. Doug Murray wrote um, in his um, Madness of Crowds, I believe it's called. How at the end of a civilization, um, people tend to turn towards like trans, like they tend to gender it. Yeah. Society. Androgynous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Did you, did you read that? It's fascinating. No, it makes sense, though. Yeah. It's I, very I, fascinating. He makes yeah. a very good point. Like yeah. as and I don't think the world's entering. I think the West is ending. Yeah. Um, I think it's the end of the West as we know it. I think that the world. I'm doing a series on the future and I was kind of criticized for being optimistic about it. And I'm like, why not? Like Mm -hmm. nobody has anything to hope for like young people who are a big part of my, I, I love kids, you know, I I love talking to kids and I love what they're about. And I hate that they're so confused right now and that things are so pessimistic towards them. Um, And my nieces and my nephews and my son, you know, and like, it shouldn't, shouldn't be about this one thing. So I'm also big into, you know, women's rights, you know, and I feel like women got about 15 seconds in the celestial like spotlight with the Me Too movement and all good stuff. And then it was, well, actually it's, 
you know, you have to clarify what kind of a woman is it? Is it the trans women? And that seems to, I always joke that it's, it's something we do. It's just another thing we do better than women do. It's yeah. when, 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 what's her name? Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner, whatever yeah, yeah. was the, was the time magazine woman of the year. I said, ha, and I was joking. And I think Dave Chappelle used that same joke on his show. And I just thought it was brilliant. Getting back to the Kabbalion, I think with the, the way it was described to me and the way I think it's really talking about, it's less about sexual gender and it's more about active and passive. So the masculine is active and God help you. We're going to get in trouble for saying that. And the feminine is passive mm-hmm. in, con- in the context of the book. So um, you might want to edit that out because we'll be no, 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 you know what all, I mean? It's all good. But, but and in, in my kind of surrealistic interpretation, it was the alchemical womb and impregnating. So it's a, an active thought impregnating a passive thought mm-hmm. so that you can give birth to a new thought. Um, and that's how gender just essentially works. And I know that that's completely out of fashion to mm-hmm. say, but it just it is how it works. It's how it works in our biological sense. And I think in the terms of the Kabbalion, it's how it works in our mental sense. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of women who don't mind to be deemed as somewhat spiritually passive. Um, not, I, certainly not that they're not strong. They're just more open to sure. um, to things. And that's what I love about women is their openness. I think guys like us are open to things as well. And that's our feminine side coming out. Absolutely. But, that's all it is. Yeah, it's a feminine side. Absolutely. I'm glad you said something about being optimistic. I mean, I am an optimist, even yeah. in the middle of everything that's going on. I mean, you know, we've done shows on the cabal and, you know, the the deep state, you know, shadow government, all, all that stuff. And through the lens of the Kabbalion or the hermetic teachings, you, it would be a half truth to say those bad guys over there. It's there isn't really any bad guys over there. And things like the law of one point out, look, these so-called evildoers, these heavies, you know, Henry Kissinger, whoever you want to point to as, as a heavy, um, they're doing the job of awakening humanity. They're doing, they're, they're acting as these kind of, you know, they're sociopaths, you know, so we think they're monsters, but really they help, they help humanity to emerge into something that wasn't there before and so in some ways they're helpers they might work for the dark side but um maybe all that is a temporary thing maybe this is maybe this dimension that you know we've been talking about dmt and and all these different things this dimension we're in is heavy with learning about dark and the light and as long as you can point over there and say those bad guys over there, I don't think you're really on the point. The point is, what are we all getting our arms around? What are the techniques that are going to get us elevated into another frequency so that we can build structures that work for everybody so that we're, we're not having these conversations 100 years from now? We're like, oh, God, we're still sucking on the same, you know, war and all the, you know, <laughs> fam. You know, we're not doing that. We we transcended it with the help of the dark side. I mean, I think it's it's super easy easy for myself included to go, Oh, this, this pesky deep state problem. When are we going to ever arrest these guys? You know, why is Tony Fauci? Why are people still listening to Tony Fauci? He should be in jail. You know, Uh, that's, that's not my call, right? I I can just, I can just act as a citizen journalist, try to elevate the conversation, but that you're an, that you're an 
optimist um, really, really warms my heart because there's a lot of people out there right now that are calling what they see, but they're like, oh, it's all going to shit and we, we don't stand a chance. I'm like, well, that's not the way to be. Like we got, no, we, got we got moves, man. Come on. So, not only that, but we've, we've come how far built on yeah. the blood and sweat of our ancestors, on our ancestors' backs. We walk yeah. on their bones and yeah. we talk about destroying everything that they worked so hard to build. Yeah. Like what kind of nonsense is that? Now I should say, I'm an optimist, but I'm a cynic, which is a very strange combination. I'm also an antagonist. I love to antagonize. I get a kick. If you say <laughs> right, I'll say left. If you yeah. say black, I'll say white. It's, sure. I, but I also think it touches on your point that the, we, society needs an antagonist mm -hmm. because we're storytelling creatures. And if we don't have a villain, you know, and you can point to, to Trump if you want to you point to Alex Jones or Carl or any of these guys that, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, whatever. But like they're serving their purpose in the mm -hmm. sense that I always give the analogy that when I was a kid, we had roaches in our house and I kept saying, no, we don't. Like I've never seen a roach in this house before. My dad insisted that we had roaches. And he's like, no, I'm going to I'm going to get a bomb like one of these <laughs> like bug bombs. Yeah. And he got the bomb, put it in the um you know, in the house. And all of a sudden all these roaches were everywhere. And it, it shed a light. I was, I was blind to the fact because I didn't have like things weren't out in the open mm -hmm. and it was almost like flashing a spotlight on a problem. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes I'd say more often than not, it's the antagonist that does that. And, you know, you have to be able to look past and to say, look, everything's going to be okay. Yeah. It just might change. And that's alchemy, right? That's, yeah, that's absolutely a big part of the Kabbalion is we are in a constant state of change. And if we weren't in a constant state of change, we'd be in a constant stasis. And, yeah. you know, you, if, if you're a creative and you're in a state of, and you're in stasis, it's, it's death. I mean, you feel yeah. yourself rotting and, that started happening to me during the first half of the pandemic, especially here in New York, where you mm. were terrified and you couldn't leave your house and it was real and people were fucking dying. Yeah. That's a, that's a huge leap to, that we've made, but like I, I couldn't do what I wanted to do. So I started drawing and I started sculpting and it was like, Oh, now I feel better because yeah. the simple act of creation is what I need to make myself complete. That's great. Well, that doesn't said. sound like a load of horseshit. <laughs> no, it's all good. It's well, true. Well, Ronnie, you know. thanks so much for coming on Basecamp for me. Where do people find the Kabbalah, your film? How can they download that? And what's your website? How can they find your work if they want to yeah. check out what you're doing? Yeah, themidnightarchive.com has all of my work um, freely available, all but the Kabbalion, because in it, the Kabbalion was a commercial project. Mm -hmm. um, in, if you want to call it that, it's far from commercial, but it was, you know, it, it went through the, the proper channels. But the midnightarchive.com, that's got all my web series, dozens and dozens of films. Um, and I will say I make every single one of them for the subject. I don't make anything for myself. It's all because of my love and admiration, much like what you're doing here, which is what I so respect for the subject and the, and the person I've got, I'm documenting. So I, I think if you like this conversation, you'd love the films. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I certainly enjoyed it. Congratulations on it. It's uh, it's excellent work. And I just love our conversation today. Let's do it again as you unpack some uh, projects in the coming year. I know you've got some really interesting stuff coming up and we'll be tracking that. And let's do this again later this year. I, I really enjoyed this. Gladly. It was very, very much a pleasure. 
I hope you enjoyed our time with Ronnie Thomas. I look forward to keeping track of him and his future projects. He's got some exciting ones coming up and hopefully having him back on base camp for another conversation later this year. For Ronnie's work and to find his latest film, The Kabbalion, go to www.themidnightarchive.com. And in terms of the esoteric classic, The Kabbalion, I highly recommend the book, The Kabbalion, the definitive edition by William Walker Atkinson, written as The Three Initiates, with an introduction and edited by Philip the Slip. If you find value in our show and wish to show us some love, we are now making that very easy to do. You simply go to www.basecampformen.com and click on Donate Support Basecamp. You'll find an easy way to make either monthly donations for as little as $5 a month, or you can donate just once. We love the monthly donation and hope to build this up over the coming months, but any show of support is greatly appreciated, honestly. Thank you for your support and for helping to keep Basecamp as a resource on your hero's journey. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. Men, good luck in all your endeavors and good luck on your hero's journey. This is Tony Rezac, and you're listening to Base Camp for Men. Mm-hmm.